The Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Christ knows we never love him so much as when we feel his love. We pray for that which Christ himself is praying for. We pray that his joy may be fulfilled in us. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled The Christian Joy, and it was preached by Thomas Watson, likely in the 1650s. Joel, we are back in the 1600s during that all-too-confusing time period that is the English Civil War. And we are back with another famous Puritan from that era, Thomas Watson, to kind of get you some perspective. If you've been a follower of the show for a while or checked out our earlier episodes, he was thrown in jail with Christopher Love, a preacher we've covered before. And John Bunyan would have lived through the same time period and in the same area. So we've covered this era quite a bit on the show. And another recent guy in this area would have also been Richard Baxter. But Thomas Watson is going to give us a sermon on Christian joy. And sometimes I think the best people to remind us of joy are those who have had tough lives. It's easy uh, for people who've lived a pretty good life, privileged, you know, wealthy, they're doing nicer, they're very happy to say, oh, yeah, here's here's how you live a life of joy. But don't we all take it much more seriously when it's someone that we've known has had a really hard time, they've lost loved ones, they've been sick, they've, they've really had a tough life, and they tell you, here's how you get joy. And one more little endorsement, if you're looking for another reason to check out Thomas Watson, Charles Spurgeon actually wrote a book on Watson, and, and he really took Watson very seriously. So a pretty high endorsement from a big, big name there. Yeah, Thomas Watson, he was born in 1620, it may be in Yorkshire. We really don't know. And that, I mean, that's kind of a theme with with Watson that we'll see is that a lot of his early life is a mystery. There was one uh, account of someone mentioning Watson and they called him a, a Puritan Melchizedek because he seems to have no mother or father because it just wasn't recorded. The, the first times we see him mentioned in history are when he's in college. So most of his early life, we don't know a lot about. And this is not terribly uncommon for a lot of these speakers uh, here on Revived Thoughts. It's kind of a harsh statement to say that I'll, most people throughout history just weren't worth writing down. That's such a contrary way of thinking to compare to our current life. I mean, I think of uh, children now, they're never not going to know what their childhood was like. Like there's yeah. generations, 100 years from now, people are still going to know because just because with the internet, with social media, you're going to know what your baby pictures were. You're going to know, you know, what your jobs were. Our lives are incredibly well documented now. In the 1600s, they just, there, there was no good way and or reason to document that stuff. So it just wasn't a lot of the time. And it's kind of interesting just to think about how many people in history just are forgotten. We just we just don't know. We don't know who they were. We don't know. And, and I mean, people that did incredible works for the church, incredible works for the cause of Christ, but we'll never know their name or what they did because it wasn't documented. 
this is the case for uh, a lot of Thomas Watson's life, especially his earlier life. Uh, there's just not a lot about it. But as we say on this show, even if what we do on Earth isn't remembered, or even if it seems insignificant or unimportant, God sees it all. So his story starts with him at a school called Emmanuel College. This place had a lot of Puritans that went to it. He was kind of the classic case of the intelligent man. He was a great lecturer, a preacher. He did all these different roles. I feel like that story is almost 90% of the people we on here are super smart. And everyone was like, wow, that guy's a genius. And he would have stayed as probably this kind of professorial lecturer type had the English Civil War not broken out. Now, most of the Puritans were a fan of Oliver Cromwell, and he took over England, and they pushed the king out. Uh, but Thomas Watson actually was not. And he joined Christopher Love in trying to bring the king back. They, uh, this got him sent to prison for some time. And he was there with Christopher Love and another famous Puritan at that time. And now sometimes I think to myself, wow, it'd be kind of amazing to be in that prison with these incredible men. I, w I wonder what kind of conversations they were having. Were they singing hymns? Why, what was going on there, right? These are really important people in church history. But I have to remind myself that we're missing the humanity a lot of times in moments like these. These were dirty, underfed, probably sick people. They were in these horrible dark rooms. There would have been rats. It would have been a very unpleasant place to be. Uh, they had no idea that they'd be famous Puritans to people hundreds of years later. At the time, they were in chains, and they were watching their country be torn apart by a civil war, and they likely were worrying about friends and family, and I'm in here. I hope my wife is doing okay. This was not a fun moment. This wasn't cool for them. This was miserable. It was it was not about establishing some kind of street cred, like, oh yeah, there's you know one of the preachers that went to the prison for Christ. This was a sad thing that they went through. I mean, it's important to remember that these things that people do for Christ that we go, wow, that's amazing. It was suffering to them. All right, Thomas Watson, he, he leaves the prison alive, but Christopher Love, the other gentleman, one of the other gentlemen he was with, he gets beheaded. And another guy, William uh, Jenkin, he dies of illness there. So imagine watching one friend just rotting away of illness, you know, you're not able to help him after you just said goodbye to your other friend who you know was beheaded that day. This would have been really heartbreaking and sad. And remember, they aren't criminals. They just had a different view of what God wanted for the country. Yeah, there's something else that is also a bit tragic in Thomas Watson's life. He married a woman named Abigail, and the two of them had seven kids together. But of those seven, four died. And it doesn't come up a lot, like he doesn't mention it in his sermons very often, but you can imagine how hard that must have been for him, which makes a sermon on joy from a man like that seem so surprising and inspiring. Eventually, the king that was kicked out, that's King Charles II, actually, does come back to power, and you'd think that would go well for Thomas Watson because he was one of his supporters, but that was not the case. King Charles is pretty mad at the Puritans and passes some laws to get back at them, and Watson runs into trouble there, too. Yeah, Watson basically gets punished from both sides of the Civil War, and he eventually will have his, again, we've kind of talked about it, preaching license. I don't know if it was, you know, quite like a license you'd pull out when the cops pulled you over, but he basically gets that revoked and told he can't preach anymore or he will go to jail. And he ends up kind of going to jail off and on during this time, as a lot of these preachers end up doing. Um, it's kind of funny. It's, it's almost like if you're a real preacher during this era, you had to spend some time in jail. But the two big laws that I thought were interesting that he got in trouble with were the Five Mile Act and the Conventicle Act. 
it, these sound weird, but let's go through them because they're actually really important, I think, to hear what they were. A- after the English Civil War, they, they were trying to get the Puritans rid of them or at least weaken them a lot. The first one, the Five Mile Act, says you can't be a preacher and live within five miles of your former church. So if you had a congregation before during the war, it's now really tough to preach to those people. And, and this isn't today. You didn't just hop on a car. You'd have to walk there or ride a horse. And a lot of these people were poor. So a lot of them had to walk five miles in the morning to make it to church in time to preach. So yeah, and that other law that was passed, the Conventicle Act, and again, weird name, but it basically means that you can't have more than five non-family members meet at a pastor's house at a time. So they couldn't have any house churches or they couldn't live near their church. And you can imagine how much damage this did to the churches at that time. There are stories of church sessions going on in way deep in the woods and old abandoned barns because that was the only place they could sneak away to meet at. And people are doing everything they can to, you know, try to find loopholes in the law or sneak around, uh, see how far they can push those rules so that they can still meet to worship and to learn about God. Watson was one of these guys for sure. He was one of the guys that would try to still try to push these meetings despite the laws that were in place. And he would be known to walk several miles and visit different churches. And half those meetings were, were like I said, in old barns and, and kind of old abandoned places because that's the only place they could get away to meet at. And his health would end up taking chronic kind of a hit from all of this traveling to different places and being thrown in and out of prison. It took a real toll on his body. This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden. The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better? The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So we want to make the whole road safer. So that's the that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place, but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really want to bring both our, our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts. During the Great Fire of 1666 in London, something uh, Joel and I are kind of taking a look at, maybe a future Revive Thoughts deep dive for you guys. Uh, Interesting story there. But he actually rents out a big meeting hall. He preaches. He helps the poor. He does his best to get people aid there. He's he's this guy who's just always kind of in the middle of stuff trying to help out. And eventually... Uh, Charles II, the king, passes this law called the Declaration of Indulgence in 1672. And I'm going to take a pause here on our story and just, England, what are we doing here? Uh, Because there's actually two laws called the Declaration of Independence. They're both passed within 15 years of each other. The second one leads to something called the Glorious Revolution. And I, I know we have listeners over in the United Kingdom, but it's really confusing. You guys have a history that is just, it, this this 1600s <laughs> is just bon- wonkers. It's just yeah. crazy. And but anyway, so this law gets passed, and it means that basically if you kind of pay a little bit in, you no longer have to be uh, persecuted. You don't have to hide anymore. It ends all those other laws. 
and Watson kind of does that, and he ends up getting to be able to preach, and finally, at the very end of his life, um, he's able to preach with no one chasing him, no one putting him in prison, and he eventually dies at the age of 66, and they, they find him posed praying in his prayer closet. Yeah, this guy really didn't have a joyful life. Like, if you were to ask someone on the street what kind of life they wanted, they probably would not describe a life that looks like Watson's, but that's because we look at joy as having nice things, a good family, a good house, you know? That's what makes our joy. Watson sees joy as serving God faithfully, and he'd argue that that's what he did with his whole life. He was once asked about suffering and why it exists on earth, and he answered that he thought we suffer so that we would fall less in love with the earth and more in love with God. And so as long as we're serving God, we can have joy. Joy is setting the soul upon the top of a pinnacle. It is the cream of the sincere milk of the word. Spiritual joy is a sweet and delightful passion, arising from the apprehension and feeling of some good, where the soul is supported under present troubles and fenced against future fear. Joy is a delightful passion. It is contrary to sorrow which is a disturbing of the mind, whereby the heart is perplexed and cast down. Joy is a sweet and pleasant affection which eases the mind and exhilarates and comforts the spirit. Joy arises from the feeling of some good. Joy is not mere imagination, but is rational and arises from the feeling of some good as a sense of God's love and favor. Joy is so real a thing that it makes a sudden change in a person and turns mourning into melody. As in the springtime when the sun comes to our horizon, it makes a sudden alteration in the face of the universe. The birds sing, the flowers appear, the fig tree puts forth her green figs. Everything seems to rejoice and casts out its sorrow, as if being revived with the sweet influence of the sun. Just as when the sun of righteousness shines on the soul, it makes a sudden change and the soul is infinitely rejoiced with the golden beams of God's love. Third, by joy the soul is supported under present troubles. Joy stupefies and swallows up troubles. It carries the heart above them, just as the oil swims above the water. Fourth, by joy the heart has a fence against future fear. Joy is both medicine and an antidote. It is a medicine which gives present relief to the spirits when they are sad, and an antidote which fences off the fear of approaching danger. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How does this joy work? For starters, it arises partly from the promise. As a bee lies at the tip of the flower and sucks out its sweetness, in the same way faith lies at the tip of a promise 
and brings out the greatest of joy. Your comforts delight my soul. That is the comfort which comes from the promises. Secondly, the Spirit of God, who is called the Comforter, sometimes drops the golden oil of joy into the soul. John 14, verse 26. The Spirit whispers a remission of the sin to a believer and sheds God's love abroad in the heart, where it will flow with infinite joy and delight. Romans 5, verse 5. What are the seasons in which God usually gives his people divine joys? There are five seasons. The first is sometimes at the Blessed Supper. The soul comes weeping after Christ and the Lord's Supper, and God sends it away weeping for joy. The Jews had a custom at their feasts of pouring ointment on their guests and kissing them. In the Lord's Supper, God often pours the oil of gladness on the saints and kisses them with the kisses of his lips. There are two grand ends of the Lord's Supper, the strengthening of faith and the flourishing of joy. Here, in this ordinance, God displays a banner of his love. Here believers taste not only sacramental bread, but hidden manna. Not that God always meets a soul with joy. He may increase grace, but he does not increase joy. But oftentimes he pours in the oil of gladness and gives the soul a secret seal of his love. As Christ made himself known in the breaking of bread to the two disciples, second season comes before God calls his people to suffering. Be of good cheer, Paul, Acts 23, verse 11. When God was about to give Paul a cup of blood to drink, he spiced it with joy. As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds. Second Corinthians 1, verse 5. This made the martyrs' flames to be beds of roses to them. When Stephen was stoned, he saw heaven open, and the sun of righteousness shone upon his face. God sweetens our poison with sugar. The third season comes after sore conflicts with Satan. He is a red dragon who troubles the waters. He puts the soul into despair, makes it believe that it has no grace, and that God does not love it. Though he cannot blot out a Christian's evidence for heaven, yet he may cast such a mist before the Christian's eyes that he cannot read it. When the soul has been bruised with temptations, God will comfort the bruised reed by giving joy. To confirm a Christian's title to heaven, after Satan's fiery darts comes a white stone, no better balm to heal a tempted soul than the oil of gladness. After Christ was tempted, an angel came to comfort him. Fourth season comes after spiritual desertion. Desertion is a poisoned arrow which shoots to the heart. For the Almighty has struck me down with his arrows. He has sent his poison arrows deep within my spirit. All God's tears are arrayed against me. Job 6 verse 4 God is called a fire and a light. The deserted soul feels the fire, but does not see the light. It cries out as Asaph, Has the Lord rejected me forever? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? 
Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? Psalm 77, verses 7 to 9. When the soul is in this state, and ready to faint away in despair, God shines upon it, and gives it some apprehension of his favor. He turns the shadow of death into the light of morning. God keeps his medicines for a time of weakness. Joy after a time of desertion feels like a resurrection from the dead. The fifth season comes at the hour of death. Of those who have had no joy in their lifetime, God puts this sugar in the bottom of the cup to make their death sweet. At the last hour, when all comforts are gone, God sends the comforter, and when their appetite for food fails, he feeds them with hidden manna, as the wicked before they die have some apprehensions of hell and wrath in their conscience, so the godly have some foretastes of God's everlasting favor. Though sometimes their diseases may be so strong and their bodies so oppressed that they cannot express what they feel, Jacob laid himself to sleep on a stone and saw a vision of a ladder, and the angels ascending and descending upon it. Just so, saints lay themselves down to sleep, the sleep of death. They often have a vision. They see the light of God's face, and have the evidence of his love sealed up to them forever. What are the differences between worldly joys and spiritual joys? The leftover drops of spiritual joys are better than the cups of worldly joys. Spiritual joy helps to make us better. Worldly joys often make us worse. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. Jeremiah 22, verse 21. Pride and luxury are the two worms which are bred from worldly pleasures. Wine is the inflamer of lust. As Satan entered into the bread dipped, so often he enters in the cup. But spiritual joy makes one better. It is like medicine, which, as physicians say, not only cheers the heart, but purges out the toxic moods. So, divine joy is medicine, which not only comforts, but purifies. It makes a Christian more holy. It infuses strength to live and suffer for Christ. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Just so, the joys of God not only refresh the soul, but strengthen it. Spiritual joys are inward. They are heart joys. Your heart will rejoice, John 16, verse 22. True joy is hidden within. Worldly joy lies on the outside, like the dew which wets the leaf. We read of those who rejoice in appearance, in the Greek, in the face, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. It goes no further than the face. It is not within. Laughter can conceal a heavy heart. When the laughter ends, the grief remains. Proverbs 14, verse 13. But spiritual joy lies most within. Your heart will rejoice. Divine joy is like a spring of water which runs underground. Others can see the sufferings of a Christian, but they do not see his joy. Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can fully share its joy. 
Proverbs 14, verse 10. His joy is hidden manna, hidden from the eye of the world. He has joyful music which others cannot hear. The marrow lies within. The best joy is within the heart. Spiritual joys are sweeter than worldly joys. Your love is sweeter than wine. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 2. Spiritual joys are a Christian's festival. They are the golden pot and the sweet manna. They are so sweet that they make everything else sweeter. Spiritual joys sweeten health and home. Just as sweet water poured on flowers makes them more fragrant and aromatic. Divine joys are so delicious and ravishing that they put our mouth out of taste for earthly delights. Just as he who has been drinking medicine tastes the sweetness in water. Paul had so tasted these divine joys that his mouth was out of taste for worldly things. The world was crucified to him. It was like a dead thing. He could find no sweetness in it. Galatians 6 verse 14 Spiritual joys are more pure. They are not tempered with any bitter ingredients. A sinner's joy is mixed with dregs. It is embittered with fear and guilt. He drinks poisoned wine. But spiritual joy is not dirtied with guilt. But like a crystal stream, it runs pure. It is a rose without prickles. It is honey without wax. Spiritual joys are satisfying joys. Ask that your joy may be full. Worldly joys can no more fill the heart than a drop can fill an ocean. They may please a palate or imagination, but cannot satisfy the soul. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8. But the joys of God satisfy. Your comforts delight my soul. Psalm 94 verse 19. There is as much difference between spiritual joys and earthly joys as between a banquet which is eaten and one which is painted on the wall. Spiritual joys are stronger joys than worldly joys. Strong consolation, Hebrews 6, verse 18. They are strong joys indeed, which can bear up a Christian's heart in trials and afflictions. Having received the word in much affliction with joy. These joys are roses, which grow in winter. These joys can sweeten the bitter waters of Mara. He who has these joys can gather grapes from thorns and fetch honey out of the carcass of a lion. As grieving, yet always rejoicing, Second Corinthians 6, verse 10. At the end of the rod, a Christian tastes honey. Spiritual joys are unwearied joys. Other joys, when in excess, often cause loathing. Too much honey nauseates. One may be tired of pleasure as well as labor. King Xerxes offered a reward to him who could find out a new pleasure. But the joys of God, though they satisfy, yet they never glut. A drop of joy is sweet, but the more of this wine, the better. Such as drink of the joys of heaven are never glutted. Their fullness is without loathing, because they still desire more of the joy with which they are filled. Spiritual joys are abiding joys. 
Worldly joys are soon gone. Some will crown themselves with rosebuds and bathe in the perfumed waters of pleasure. May have joys which seem to be sweet, but they are fleeting, like meteors which shine a bright and sudden flash and then disappear. But the joys which believers have are abiding. They are a blossom of eternity, a pledge of those rivers of pleasure which run at God's right hand. And your presence is abundant joy, and your right hand are eternal pleasures. Psalm 16, verse 11. Why is this joy to be labored for? Because it is self-existent. Spiritual joy can exist in the absence of all other carnal joy. The joy does not depend upon outward things. As a philosopher said when the musician came to them, philosophers marry without music, so he who has a spiritual joy can be cheerful in the deficiency of carnal joys. He can rejoice in God and sure hope of glory. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields, and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 18. Spiritual joy can go without silver crutches to support it. Spiritual joy is built higher than upon creatures, for it is built on the love of God, on the promises of Scripture, and on the blood of Christ. Because spiritual joy carries the soul through duty, cheerfully, religion becomes a recreation. Fear and sorrow hinder us in the discharge of duty. But a Christian serves God with activity when he serves him with joy. The oil of joy makes the wills of obedience move faster. How fervently did they pray whom God made joyful in the house of prayer. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. Isaiah 56 verse 7. It is called the kingdom of God because it is a taste of that which the saints have in the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14 verse 17. What is the heaven of angels but the smiles of God's face? the sensible perception and feeling of those joys which are infinitely ravishing and full of glory. Consider that Christ died to purchase his joy for his saints. He was a man of sorrows, that we might be full of joy. He prayed that the saints might have this divine joy. And now I am coming to you. I have told them many things while I was with them, so they would be filled with my joy, John 17, verse 13. Christ knows we never love him so much as when we feel his love, which may encourage us to seek after this joy. We pray for that which Christ himself is praying for. We pray that his joy may be fulfilled in us. What shall we do to obtain this spiritual joy? Walk consistently and spiritually, God gives joy after long and close walking with him. First, observe your hours. Set time every day apart for God. Second, mourn for sin. Mourning is a seed, as Basil says.
out of which the flower of spiritual joy grows. I will comfort those who mourn, Isaiah 57, verse 18. Third, keep the book of conscience fair written. Do not by inappropriate sins blur your good name. A good conscience is the ark in which God puts the hidden manna. Fourth, be often upon your knees. Pray with life and passion. The same spirit who fills a heart with sighs fills it with joy. The same spirit who inspires a prayer seals it. When Hannah had prayed, her face was no longer sad, for Samuel 1, verse 18. Praying Christians have much fellowship with God, and none are so likely to have the secrets of his love imparted as those who hold correspondence with him. By close walking with God, we get clusters of Eskel's grapes along the way, which are a pledge of future happiness. How will we comfort those who lack joy? Those who walk in close communion with God have more joy than others. They have initial joy in the seed. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy upon the upright in heart. Psalm 97 verse 11. Grace in the heart is the seed of joy. Though a Christian lacks a son, he has a day star in his heart. They will have real joy, though not royal comforts. He has, as Aquinas says, joy in God though not from God. Joy in God is the delight and pleasure the soul takes in God. My soul will be glad in the Lord. He who is truly gracious is so far joyful as to take comfort in God. Though he cannot say that God rejoices in him, he can say that he rejoices in God. He has supporting joy, though not transporting comforts. He has as much as keeps him from sinking you strengthen me with strength in my soul, Psalm 138, verse 3. If a Christian does not have God's arm to embrace him, yet he has it to uphold him. So a Christian who walks with God has something which keeps his heart from sinking, and it is but floating for a while, and he is sure of those eternal joys which are unspeakable and full of glory. Use 1. See that true religion is no melancholy thing. It brings joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy may vary, but it is never totally destroyed. A poor Christian who exists on bread and water may have purer joy than the greatest king or queen. Though he fares hard, he feeds high. He has a table spread from heaven, angels' food, and a hidden manna. He has sometimes sweet raptures of joy, which cause jubilation of spirit. He is that which is better felt than can be expressed. But I do know that I was caught up into paradise and heard many things so astounding that they cannot be told. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4 Use 2. If God gives his people such joy in this life, oh then... What glorious joy will he give them in heaven? Enter into the joy of your Lord, Matthew 25, verse 21. Here on earth, joy begins to enter into us. There in heaven, we will enter into joy. God keeps his best wine until last. Heliogobalus bathed himself in sweet perfumed waters. 
What joy will that be when the soul will forever bathe itself in a pure and pleasant fountain of God's love? What joy will that be to see the brightness of Christ's face and have the kisses of those lips which drop sweet-smelling myrrh? The bride will rejoice in the embrace of her Lord. Augustine Oh, if a cluster of grapes here is so sweet, what will the full matured wine be in heaven? How may this set us all longing for that place where sorrow cannot live and where joy cannot die? There is this line in the sermon that I thought just it, it blew me away because it's true, but it's not something you think about. The way he said it is just the leftover drops of spiritual joys are better than full cups of worldly joys. And it's so weird, but I definitely agree with that. The You know, the best moments when I felt closest to God are worth more to me. I feel like they've shaped who I am and they've mattered more to me than the best moments where I'm having fun or I'm focused on worldly pleasure or I've had a really great day. Those days don't usually change the trajectory of my life and they don't really make me think about deeper things and they don't really change who I am, cause me to repent or any of those things, but just you know, one moment where you're like, no, I encountered God in that and I, you know, that prayer, that whatever it was, was answered. Those moments do change you. And so I'd completely agree that just even a little time with God you know, what, what does it say? Is it better to be a servant in the court of the Lord than to be, you know, anywhere, be a king in a palace, right? Like, we, there's no better place to be, and I think he really said that well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Tom Sullivan. Tom recently retired from the post office, which he worked at since 1994. He has been narrating sermons and old works since December of 1985 for the Chapel Library when it was in Venice, Florida. He teaches American church history and the theology of Christian experiences. He has lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 31 years and has been a Reformed Baptist since 1984. You can find some of Tom Sullivan's work on Sermon Audio. Thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, all we ask is that you share it with others. Let other people know what we're doing here. We see you guys uh, sending messages, retweeting, putting them up on Facebook, and we know that you're telling others in person. That is awesome. Uh, the show is growing thanks to your hard work, and I we just ask that you continue to do that and continue to see the show grow. As the show does grow, we are able to do more. Joel and I are able to put together more things, and so we're really excited about those things we can do in the future, and we can't wait to see where things go next. So thank you so much for the sharing you've been doing, and we just ask that you continue to do so. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.